0: John, I love my American healthcare, but it's just too darn expensive. Well, I've got the solution. You should try value-based healthcare. What the heck is that? Let me explain.
1: Welcome to CareTalk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group.
0: And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Carecentrics.
1: Now, John, I got a question for you, a provocative question.
0: Is value-based care dead? Wow, I can't imagine anything more exciting. Value-based care. Well, first of all, what exactly do you mean there, David? Don't just throw around big phrases to make it seem like you're the smarty pants consultant. Oh, John, you got me there. So the idea mainly is
1: that it's kind of pay for the outcome versus pay for activity. So the usual mechanism of paying for care here is fee for service. Do a service, get paid for it. But that could just mean that people are doing more and more stuff that the patient doesn't need. The idea is if you're paying a physician or a hospital or a drug company for the patient getting better, then everybody's in alignment. That's, that's what value-based care is supposed to be.
0: But why are they talking about value? How does this play a role in, in, in healthcare reimbursement? Philosophy. Well, John, it's value
1: based, and that's a hyphen, not an S. I know you don't have, you probably don't have vision benefits at your company, but the, uh, you know, it's value based. It's not nothing more. There's a lot of moralizing about everything.
0: Can I I help you? The whole premise here, David, is that the United States pays too much and gets too little. Yeah. We are the most expensive country in the world to get healthcare. We are 50%, I think, or 30 or 40% more expensive than Norway, which is Number two, we are not in the top 20 of any of the industrialized countries of the world, the OECD nations, in health outcomes, which is to say what happens after healthcare has kind of done its thing, whether it's in terms of low birth weight, children, um, or, or, or heart disease, you pick the major categories of illness. And we are not top 20 in anything other than cancer, where our massive investment in scanning And technology allows us to identify cancer early. We are twice as expensive as the average OECD country, and only a third more expensive than Norway. We're even losing to the Norwegians, David, on issues of value for money. The healthcare costs consume increasingly the majority of state costs for Medicaid, and they're, they're, they're tapping on that, that door with the feds in terms of Medicare and Medicaid. Commercially, uh, the, all of the increases in costs for, for health insurance to pay for the exorbitant prices we pay as individual private pay folks uh, are not turning into better outcomes and it costs more. And that's a value problem, David, not a values problem. Okay, John, well, listen, you know, my next question was
1: going to be, why should I care? But I guess you've just now explained it pretty well. So let's just say we care. You are not going to be able to afford right, right, care right. for
0: your lovely right, kids. So
1: here's the thing. So we've been talking about value-based care for a long time, but it's still been a lot of fee-for-service. I remember a long time ago, let's say 25 years ago, California was going to, you know, full capitation. And there was all these articles about how it's going to be inevitable that that's going to move across the country. Hasn't happened. And instead what happened is you still have what, now they say that, you know, half of payments are made under value-based arrangements, but it's actually mostly done within a fee-for-service infrastructure. And it turns out that you just get the bonuses.
0: What value-based payment means is basically paying on a budget. That could be a budget for a total cost of a knee replacement, it could be a budget for all of the primary care that uh, that that your that your internist or specialist might pay for it could be an episode related to your psychiatric interventions or it could be related to a particular disease state but value pay, value based payment is always some form of payment on a budget that's sometimes referred to as capitation which would be one payment for one thing. And you're right. California started there. And I would argue that it actually value-based payment, capitation, paying on a budget has actually spread across the country. I mean, I think that 60% of all of the payments in the US are in some ways tied to a budgeted number. Yeah. Well, in some ways,
1: but I think what happens is they don't really, they, they find ways for it to go up. Well, what we've learned over the past decade or so because the Affordable Care Act brought in a lot of these programs, like accountable care organizations, um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid innovation is is working on, and and reviewing them, what you see is something like a global budget works. Now I don't mean the globe I don't mean like including Norway in the budget, John. That's not what I mean by global budget. I mean including all the expenses, all the activities for a given patient. And when you do that, like Maryland's total cost of care model, you end up generating savings. You meet the quality metrics, and you reduce the hospitalization. What doesn't work so well is some of these bundled payments, where you're just being paid uh, a, a case rate, just like say for an episode of care.
0: David, David, David. Again, you're just running around using these big phrases. Like, what about Maryland? Explain what you're talking about there. I mean, I, I mean, I think I know what you're talking about. Is the fact that in Maryland. They actually have a total budget for the state, and it's an all-payer system, which is, which is to say whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial, the providers, the docs or the hospitals are paid the same rate for a procedure, but it's tied to a global budget for the state. Is that what you're talking about? John,
1: you know, in Maryland, the uh, the state song is Maryland, my Maryland. So they're very, <laughs> I don't want to say that, it's very provincial. So they, they have their own way of doing things in Maryland. And and actually, it is pointed to, not for many things, I think Spiro Agnew is also from uh, from Maryland. So it has its-, its ups. Milk, cheater, Agnew, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it has its ups and downs. But Maryland has actually done something where instead of having, you know, different prices paid for all different kind of payers, they actually have more of a- Uh, of a rational approach where everybody pays the same. And yeah, they decided to set a limit on the Medicare costs in the state overall. And that seems to be the way it goes. Now, that is actually similar to what you see in these socialized systems like Canada that are actually don't perform that well.
0: Well, I thought you were going to go to Massachusetts, the People's Republic. Oh, John,
1: you know, we don't have our song. is in
0: Massachusetts. My Massachusetts put it that way. I don't know what the state bird is now. I think it could have been the dodo. Based on the pandemic response. No, but I think that the thing about um, that you're really touching on, David, is an important one, but it's subtle, which is to say most states balance their Medicaid costs by paying Medicaid, which is the the state and federal program for the poor. Those procedures that happen to poor people or people who can't pay the bills are paid at one rate. Uh, Medicare, which is the program we use to pay for care for the elderly, is paid at a higher rate. And the the difference is cross-subsidized by even increased payments for the same charge of whether it's a basic office visit or whether it's fixing your shoulder uh, for the commercial payments. And so you've got all of this cross-subsidization that happens within hospitals and doctor practices. And then you've got a fee-for-service system that's not value or capitation driven. So you have an incentive to do more things because you get paid more. And now you're on the merry-go-round. Doctors and hospitals are running around trying to get more procedures done because they're trying to optimize for the highest yield and they're worried about being underpaid for care for the elderly and the poor. And that's given us a system with more inflation and higher costs. It's unclear to me why it's also created lousy outcomes uh, or poorer outcomes. But that's we, we are we are we are in the U.S. getting the worst of both worlds. And that's where the promise of this whole value-based budgeting. I think the, the 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 scary thing, David, for a lot of people who don't live inside the spooky, nerdy, complicated world of healthcare politics, policy, and budgeting is well. But if you have a budget, doesn't mean that. You know, Mom will get less care, or my kids won't have access. I mean, that's what people were afraid of when that California model started to roll across the country.
1: John, I don't know if if you were thinking clearly when you were sputtering, but you actually said something interesting, which I'll going to give you credit for here, which is that the the prices paid, the reimbursements paid are very different. For a poor patient like Medicaid versus a commercially insured patient, somebody's working for, for a company versus somebody's on Medicare, usually an older person that's paid for by the government. And, you know, I actually think that does mess up the way business is done. If you think about somebody who's got a regular business like a bakery or a car rental agency, you know, they might give a 10% senior discount or 5% student discount or something like that. Here we're talking about, you know, Medicaid, it could be an 80% discount. And it could be that the prices are so crazy that it really interferes with how you even do business and what you're thinking about. Like you want to sell more of these things, but it, you have to be, you know, who is it to and what's your contract? will you
0: get paid for it. Well, I, get, I get the fact that that's confusing and hard for hospitals and doctors, but why is it so hard? I mean, we pay different amounts for different things everywhere else. Why is it more of a problem in healthcare than elsewhere? Because they're
1: already dealing with a lot of complex Things and when you're looking at a patient and you're trying to look at the data, you want to look at their clinical data so you can take the best care of them. But you have to look at the financial side of it too, otherwise you're going to go bankrupt because certain things are covered by certain payers and certain uh, people are going to pay you a lot less than uh, than others. And so it just makes it so confounding. Something that's already complicated, and you don't have access to good enough information uh, to make it work.
0: David, I'm going to I'm going to make history here and give you credit, well, at least partial credit. Um, that longitudinal view of the patient is what the promise of value-based budgeting or or, or, or or budgeting a particular episode of care or treatment for a patient, because what that allows you to do is to invest more upfront, to optimize care over time, and to invest in the follow-up that's necessary, not to get another procedure or a lab test or, a, or an x-ray done, but to actually provide the care that people need, whether it's con- counseling on diet, like for example with you, um, David, or whether it's it's uh, social support for me. I mean, each one of us has individualized needs in order to optimize our care. If I'm home with a with a sick kid, uh, that may be what actually. I may need telemedicine, or as opposed to having to go into a doctor who has to work me up for everything just to get reimbursement. It's the divergence between what I need and what they get paid for, or what 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 particularly what chronically ill folks need, that I think creates um, the kind of the, the the jaws of death, if you will, where you end up with more costs and lousy outcomes. It's that disconnect between the time you need to actually think through and support patients needs and how you get paid i think that's 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 you're exactly right that that's i think where the promise of value based budgeting comes from but also how to get it right is is not uncomplicated because you're talking about changing from a system that is much more about volume and now you're trying to well pick outcomes. Well, which outcomes and how do you price it? Well, John, I consider
1: myself to be a big time optimist because you're always knocking me down, but somehow I always like dust myself off and get up and live to see another day. So here's what I think was going to happen with value-based care, because I think it's actually going to happen now. So one reason is that if you look at the Medicare population, you know, that's growing very fast, very big. That's where most of the money is. You've got Medicare Advantage, which because of the way they have uh, its price, the star ratings, the flexibility they have in benefits and so on,
0: they actually are a value based kind of a, approach and that's maybe you know well it's, it's 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 medicare members on a budget that's true and and you know we've proven with our at, at carecentrics when we can actually get folks into a holistic whole patient program where we can address not just the specific the specific clinical need which could be infusion or physical therapy or occupational therapy, but also scan for transportation needs, whether people understand their diagnosis, whether they need to get their their prescriptions reconciled. Because often there's a problem of over-prescribing for Medicare eligibles that leads to more complicated health outcomes. Where we actually intervene, it doesn't just reduce readmissions, and this is what, what we typically take risk for, CareCentrics for 90 days, to readmissions to a hospital or a SNF for a vulnerable patient, Medicare patient. We actually found that, you know, six to 12 months later, you have a 20 to 40% total cost of care reduction that we think is directly tied to two things. One, dealing with the pa- all of the patient needs and making sure that we're doing uh, identifying the five or six things that are likely to go wrong and preventing it. But also, teaching people and their caregiving family and who they depend on, as well as the patient, on how to actually get the most out of the healthcare system and take care of themselves. You do those two things right, deal with people from a whole patient basis and give them a sense of how they can control their health outcomes, you can literally significantly impact healthcare costs, not just when we're managing those patients, but well afterwards. And And the people we serve are Medicare Medicaid plans largely that are that are that are working on a budget
1: now, John, if it were just you saying that, I'd be skeptical, but this is actually uh, research that's been published by Avalier based on a close look at the data, I encourage people to to look at that. So that's where you've got the Medicare Advantage plans and, and the Medicaid managed care plans that have that incentive to do the right thing for the patients and to save costs. So they work with an organization like CareCentrics. But then you've got this mass uh, of Medicare fee-for-service patients, which is traditional Medicare, as they call it, which is still the bulk of Medicare. But what's happening in the Biden administration is they are refining these value-based programs. And there's new talk about making them mandatory. And that way, a patient may select into Medicare Advantage, which is going to be value based, or if they're in a regular traditional Medicare, they're also going to have value based because it's going to be. Why does it have
0: to be mandatory? Walk me through that.
1: Well, it doesn't have to be mandatory. I mean, there's advan- the advantage to having it mandatory is that uh, you really force people, you force provider organizations to figure out how are they really going to carry through. Not just can I go cherry pick a few bonuses that were intended to be like it's like the introductory offer, you know. It, you got you to keep going when the going gets tough. So it makes it so that there's, syst- there's systemic savings as opposed to just those few that figured out how to play the game.
0: I mean, I, I think – and you saw that with some of the bundled payment or ACO programs, accountable care organization, uh, budget programs, or the bundled payment where they were paying hospitals – uh, a bundled payment per episode, where if it wasn't working for the hospital, the the meaning make money on the new program, they would opt out. When it's not mandatory, you can pick your winners, whether it's picking the patients that fit your particular bundles that are profitable for BCPI or bund- the bundled payment program, or whether it's dropping out of the program for the pioneer ACOs or the ACO, the accountable care organizations where the the, the hospitals were taking on budget for patients. You know, I, I do think it's going to, that whatever programs they land on are going to have to be mandatory if they're truly going to reform the system. Because ultimately, it's not just about whether any particular program works. Our, our system, we can't afford the healthcare system we've got. And I think that some element of mandatory bundled, capitated budget programs need to be enforced. And I think even if you, David, even if you look at um, the value-based sort of programs on a budget within the MA system. While 60 to 70 percent of all providers are on some kind of value-based payment, very few of them still are on full downside or even partial downside risk. And what happens, what happened initially is when they put put that budget together and the and the providers didn't just win on the upside but could potentially lose a little bit on the downside, folks opted out. So I think whether it's not the public sector through CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or the private sector through those health plans. I think you're going to have to make these programs um, requirement or have the components of a mandate if they're actually going to reform the system. And that's, that's what we all really need. So,
1: John, let's end on a high note here. I think that between Medicare Advantage and then mandatory programs under traditional Medicare may start to get cost under control, value, and values for Medicare. And then there was talk you know early on uh, in the last couple of years ago about Medicare for all. I don't think you're going to have Medicare for all, but I think there's going to be Medicare available to those with younger younger age groups or Medicare buy-in. And that may be a way that we have a distinctly American approach that preserves what we like about the healthcare system and makes it affordable.
0: Well let's just make let's just make sure that distinctly American solution doesn't come with a typically American high cost. But on that note... Amen, brother. (laughs) In any case,
1: that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group.
0: And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. If you like what you heard or you don't, please subscribe.